This episode is sponsored by the Learn Jazz Standards Inner Circle. If your goal is to level up your jazz playing this year and feel confident improvising over jazz standards, the Inner Circle has everything you need and more. With monthly jazz standard studies, a library of powerful courses, and a vibrant community of like-minded musicians, you're guaranteed to improve your playing every single month. Podcast listeners can get 50% off their first month when you go to ljsinnercircle.com. That's ljsinnercircle.com or find the link in the show notes. Now, on to today's episode. This is the Learn Jazz Standards Podcast, episode 109. Welcome to the LJS Podcast, where you get weekly jazz tips, interviews, stories, and advice for becoming a better jazz musician. And now your host, he's a jazz musician, author, and entrepreneur, Brent Bartstra. All right, welcome to another episode of the LGS Podcast. My name is Brent. I am the jazz musician behind the website LearnJazzStandards.com, which is a blog and a podcast all geared towards helping you become a better jazz musician. I want to thank you so much for listening, whether this is your first time ever or if you're a returning listener. I really appreciate it. And on today's episode 109, it has been a while since we've had a guest on the show because we've been doing Jazz Standards Month in the month of March, but now that we're in April, I'm excited to invite, invite onto the show Brett Pontecorvo. He's a pianist. He is a, a, a professional music editor and engraver. I'm really excited to have him on because he actually did all of the editing and engraving work for my brand new ebook, The Jazz Standards Playbook, which is coming out on April 8th, Sunday, April 8th, if you're listening in real time. That's uh, this upcoming Sunday, which I'm so excited about. It's a, uh, a book that goes through 10 in-depth Jazz standard studies. These are songs that if you know these really well, if you go deep into them, you are going to find it so much easier to learn any jazz standard and learn all those important lessons to help you become a better jazz musician. So if you want to get notified about that, or maybe if you're listening in the future, it could already be out. That's at the jazz standards playbook.com. Come, I hope you check it out. But Brett, he did all of the work on this book, and he's going to just absolutely unload a ton of value on uh, today about music notation, how to do it, the proper uh, tips, the proper tools, uh, the proper way to do all of it. And I know having him has been incredibly valuable working on uh, big projects like the Jazz Standards Playbook. And so he's going to give you all the information you know how to set up charts properly, whether it's for arrangements or just a composition or exercises, uh, how to music notate, you know, and, and, and do that correctly. So not only is Brett going to give you the ins and outs of this uh, of this entire skill here, but also if you do need any special lessons, any private lessons on this stuff, or maybe you need engraving services yourself, you can always go to his website. It's brettpontecorvo.com. That's Brett, B-R-E-T-T, and then his last name, P-O-N-T-E-C-O-R-V-O.com. You can check him out there. But without further ado, let's jump into this interview. All right, welcoming on the show is pianist and professional engraver and my good friend, Brett Pontecorvo. Brett, are you ready to lay down some value for the audience today? I am. It's going to be great. Now, we had you on the show before to talk about sight reading, which was an absolutely killer episode, and I suggest everybody go check that one out again. But for those of you who, who haven't heard of you before, can kind of give the little uh, short Brett Pontecorvo bio, what you're all about, what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um so I, I do a, I do a lot of playing. Um, I do a lot of musical theater playing, and then I also do a lot of um, like audio stuff. And then I spend a lot of time doing uh, music engraving, which is basically like taking somebody will send me oftentimes something they've either written by hand or like uh, a finale file of something that they've written, and I take it and I make it look beautiful so that people can read it easily. And uh, you've recently done all of the editing. Uh, you've, you've acted as my engraver on my, my most recent book that's coming out uh, uh, next week. 
it called the Jazz Standards Playbook, which you did a phenomenal job on. You work. We've done we've done lots of products uh, projects before uh, yeah. together. And uh, can I just say right away that I'm pretty sure I've lost a few years of my life uh-uh. doing these things. And you, but the thing is, like, you were there for them. Like, you know exactly, you know what was going on with this. And so yeah. I just want to thank you publicly for uh, putting up with all of my shenanigans and. Uh, Man, just doing such a great job editing all the the stuff in this book and all my other projects uh, and just laying it down. And that's exactly why I have you on today, because uh, you're a pro at at, when it comes to editing and uh, music notation and spacing and how things should look on a page so that people can read it properly. I mean, you're really a pro. And I kind of uh, mentioned this a little bit up in the intro, uh, what it means to be an engraver. But in your words, uh, what is an engraver when it comes to uh, music? Yeah, I think an engraver is, is just somebody who makes the music look incredibly readable on a page. Like your primary job as an engraver is to take sheet music, something that's physically written down on a page, and make it look completely readable, completely understandable, and you know pleasing to the eyes so that it's easily converted to actually sounding music. Right, and... And as far as, you know, in my particular case, when I'm hiring you, uh, I'm using you for my educational materials, for my ebooks, for uh, other things like, like this. Uh, but, you know, there are people hire engravers or, uh, or even that the concept of doing this is important for someone who wants to bring in a chart for a band or someone who, you know, has a, an original composition they want to show or anything like this. This is important stuff uh, to yep. make sure all of this is uh, correct. Um, now I, I want to ask you for, for those who are just starting out, you know, maybe they don't have a lot of, uh, music notation chops. They haven't done a lot of it. I know personally myself, n- I never took a class where someone trained me. Everything that I've learned is very trial by error. And I remember when I first got into college, uh, back in the, co- back in our college days, me and Brett went to college together. Oh, the stories. Uh, I mean, there's too many, too many stories. Uh, but I remember when I first got into college. Um, I, I didn't really know how to do it very well, and I, I was. It took me a, a while to to understand how to do it by just simple trial and error. But for those who are listening who haven't done a lot about this, is there some basic golden rules of music notation and setting up a chart? Yeah, I guess it depends if you're using software or paper. But I'm going to talk general, okay. super general. So, I think the first thing is like be super comfortable with like standard rhythms. I'm not even talking about anything crazy. Like, do you know what a quarter note looks like? Uh, Right. Do you know what a half note looks like? Do you know what a whole note looks like? Um, so I'd say that would be step one. I would say, uh, step two for like, just kind of getting your hands around it. If it's software, like start to figure out where your very basic things are. How do I enter in a note? How do I enter in an articulation? Um, And then I think the third thing is like start to look at music that you already have written down by somebody who is a professional from the standpoint of how do I recreate this? Like, why does this piece of music look so great and how can I emulate that? Um, Yeah, which I think like has a lot of crossover with jazz too, right? We spend a lot of time copying people's solos and learning. And I think it's, it's the same deal, like steal from what is great and make it your own. Right. And, and, you know, one thing that I think that, uh, you know, that has made you so good at this is that you've read a lot of music. Um, you, you read a ton of music, uh, hence why we had you on, on a, on a previous episode talking about how to become an expert sight reader. So how would you say that plays a role in just that, you know, those fundamentals of understanding how to notate? Yeah. You know, everything in music repeats itself. Um, and so, like, I, I play a lot, lot of musical theater, um, and there are, like, certain things that happen all the time. So when I see them, I don't have to think about them very, very much. So I think the more music you see, the more music you read, the better you become at engraving. Because you're just familiar with how it's done. Um, you're not guessing about how it's done. Right, know? right, absolutely, yeah. And, and I feel like if you're... If you're, you know, let's just say you, you're coming up with an original composition and you want to write down the idea that you, you composed on your instrument, having that understanding of 
what things should look like so that not only can you feel a rhythm in your body, but you can, you can see it on a piece of paper is, is really helpful, um, with this stuff. Okay. So, uh, I, I asked ahead, uh, to our learn jazz standards, Facebook community group, any questions they might have for you. And I got some great questions. So let me start out with this one. This is from Phil Kahn and he asks, uh, he, he says, uh, ask about the layout of rhythms within a bar, especially where notes cross beats. How do you lay out syncopated rhythms so that it's obvious where the beats are and where the notes lie? Excellent question. Yeah, that's a good question. It's a great question. Um, okay. I, rule number one, you have to be able to see beat three. Uh-huh. Um, okay. What, so what does that, how does, what's that, what does that mean? Um, what does that mean? That's a great question. So if you have a syncopated rhythm that falls, here's a, a great standard one. If your pulse is like, dome, two, three, four, like, da, do, 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 none of those notes except for the first one land on the beat, right? Right, so they're jumping over, right? They're jumping over the beat. So if you have something that would take up the space of a full quarter note, for example, but it starts on the and of two, so like the second half of beat two, but it still takes up the length of a quarter note, which would be two eighth notes. You should write two eighth notes and tie them together. Gotcha. So visually, that's going to be a lot easier to look at. Um, and the second thing, too, I think to think about is if you're doing something that has like a 16th note syncopation, um, something that like often happens is, uh, here's a great example of this. If you have like 16th note, 8th note, 16th note, so like that, da, da, um, and that pattern repeats, but it's like an 8th note, it ends up, this is something that blew my mind at some point, it ends up being that like you have that pattern, it looks like just the same thing, but the two 16th notes are tied together. Um, and I think another thing to think about too, and when you say like, how do I line up syncopations on the page so it's really clear where the beat is, you have to ask yourself like, is what I'm writing something that I've heard played somewhere else? Because if so, there's going to be a convention that you can check that up against, right? Um, Certain things, certain players have seen already, so they're just going to nail it the first time. Right? right? Um, Yeah, and you know, something else I think to think about too in this this case is like how you're spacing your notes out. Um, So like your note spacing is not going to be mathematically exactly accurate so like your your 16th note is not going to take up exactly half the space of an eighth note um on the page you mean like visually visually on the page if you're going got you from one side to the other it's it's gonna be it's gonna be close and i think technically like in computer lingo it's scaled to the golden ratio um but like it's gonna be close but it's not going to be exact so if you're looking at the layout and it's something that feels comfortable to your eyes, which again, this is why reading a lot of sheet music is helpful for engraving. Um, if it feels comfortable to your eyes when you're looking at it, chances are the player who's looking at it is also going to feel comfortable. Um, and that's going to yeah help them clearly see where the beats are. Gotcha. So, I, the, it's, it, so of course, how it feels, the conventions... And it seems the big takeaway there was make sure you can see the beginning of beat three, correct? Yeah, now, what if, so what if you have uh, an eighth note? Yeah. Well, what if the rhythm is, okay, so this is beat three. Starting on beat three, you have an eighth note and then a quarter note and then an eighth note. Is that okay? Totally cool. Okay. Yeah, totally cool. And um, why, is, why, why, is that, why is that cool? Why is that easier to read than... For example, you know, tying tying the eighth notes together so you can see beat four. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There was a point in time where I would have tied those together so I could see beat four. Um, but I actually was playing The Little Mermaid, and I started to notice that all of their phrases, because they have like all of those syncopated, you know, under the sea, whatever, right? Exactly. Love it. Exactly. But that rhythm, they would just notate as, as exactly what you said, eighth, quarter, eighth. And I think what it comes down to is there's a certain expectation that the person reading it 
can solidly feel where the downbeat is and where the halfway mark is. Gotcha. So it's like those are the two markers and everything that happens in the middle, we expect that you can either count or, you know, you've seen it before perhaps, right? And, and so you're going to play it correctly because it's not the first time you've seen that type of rhythm. Great, great. Now, t- this is a this is kind of a selfish question. It's a personal question here. So, um, one thing when I was doing a book for Hal Leonard um, a few years ago, one thing that I noticed is when I sent in some uh, rough drafts of some material to one of their editors, they yeah. they sent it back to me. They said, "Oh, uh, if you're going to end that phrase, uh, it was I was doing short licks and phrases. If you're going to end that phrase, uh, this particular rhythm was." Um, I forgot exactly if I was how I was notating it, maybe, uh, but they told me they wanted eight, eighth note and then a dotted quarter to end a phrase when I was doing like a uh, a one and rhythm, but ending it uh-huh. on the end. You know what I'm saying? They of, wanted an eighth note and a dotted eighth note to end the phrase. A dotted quarter note, sorry. Eighth note oh, and yeah. a dotted quarter note. Yeah, yeah. Is, does that resonate with you at all? Like why that would be rather than... Uh, uh, ending not, on a half note or dotted quarter note in the phrase. I mean, yeah, that's something that I've seen before. Like, okay, to me, that comes down to more of. Uh, so was the eighth note on beat one? Eighth note was on beat one. Yeah, it's it's because eighth note is showing you where beat one is. Right. And and so, and then your dotted quarter note. But like, if they were, if it was tied, like eighth note tied to a quarter note. It's it, that, like, if you think about it purely from amount of information that your eyes are receiving, you have to, in your head, know not to play the second beat, which is probably second nature to a lot of people. But like, it's less work for your eyes if you're just seeing that one note. Gotcha. So, okay, and that that ties that. Well, the reason I asked that is that ties exactly right in with like those, you know how do you line up the rhythms right and when things go over over the beats um the, so i love your answers here cuz it sounds like there's this combination of a lot of it has to do with what is easiest for people to read you know just what is easiest for the reader in general in the convention yeah. so i oh, i really appreciate it. this is really valuable information thank you so yeah. um l- let me move on to another question i got from the facebook community group this is from bruce mishkit he says, why has there been a trend over the last 10 or 15 years to get away from the dominant 7 sharp 9 flat 13 chord spelling in favor of the seemingly more popular sh- uh, 7 sharp 9 sharp 5 spelling? So basically, he's he's saying, why is there... why Versus C7 sharp 9 flat 13 versus C7 sharp 9 uh, sharp 5. Um <laughs> So I'm yeah. not sure. I'm not sure if I 100% agree if one if the sharp five is more popular than the flat thirteen. But maybe we can maybe we can just talk about really quickly why would you name sure. that? You know, because right, the flat thirteen and the sharp five is the same note. You know, yeah. essentially, right? So yeah, what? Yeah. What? Why would you? Ha- Let's talk about chord spelling for a second. Great, great. Yeah. So a chord spelling crash course. The first thing that you always see is the root note. Um. Well. Yeah, let's say that for now. The first thing that's, that you're that's, that's true though <laughs> is the root note, right? Well, unless you've got something where it's like the root is not it's like C seven over E, right? Oh, like that's, a slight, like a slash chord, like the slash chord, right? But right? Right? The first thing that you're going to see if it's not a slash chord is a root note, right? So, whatever you're going to see your C chord. Now, <clears throat> it, everything after that has to go in order, numerical order, right? So, if you see a C chord, you're assuming that's a triad. There's no other information. Um, the next possible thing that you're you're either going to see is a sharp five or a six, which are going to be called a sharp five or a six because there's no higher number, right? So C sharp five, triad, right? C six, maybe a triad, maybe not. Once you get to seven, you can no longer have a sharp five, right? Mm-hmm. So at, at, as soon as you get to seven, you're flat thirteen. Okay. Uh, and, and also, as soon as you get to seven, you're also not going to use two. You'll use nine instead of two. So you're going to build it up in order from bottom to top. Right. That answer the question? I think, it, I think it does. So, I mean, essentially, well, so let me ask you this question back. Because, yeah. you know, when I, when I see flat 13, 
that means there's still a five in the court. You know what I'm saying? Because it's 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 the extension on top, and so you're altering that extension. Absolutely. And but if I see a sharp five, I'm just thinking. Well, it could be a seventh chord, but there the fifth is just sharped. Would that be correct? Yes, yes. Although I think too, depending on like what instrument or what context you're playing, like if I see a flat thirteen, I may or may not include the five. Right, right. Of course, right. You, like, you, don't, you don't have to, right? I'm, but, but theoretically speaking, if you were to stack those in thirds, there's a fifth, right? Correct. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. That is definitely one way. Yes, correct. And and the other thing, too, I, I think you have to think about when you're seeing, like, a trend towards certain, uh, like, spellings or something, and, and you see this a lot in show tunes, um, but I think you certainly see it in jazz as well. At some point, somebody wrote this sheet music for a person, for a specific player. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're doing engraving for a specific person, you're going to start to know what they prefer to see. So you may end up writing a sharp five, even if it's technically incorrect, because in the engraver's head, you're writing it for a specific person. And then 25 years later, 30 years later, everybody has their hands on sheet music that you wrote for one person. You know, you know what I'm saying? Right, Cons- right. Right, totally. Yeah, because, you know, music music is, I mean, musicians all the time write music specifically for right. certain musicians. You know, that happens all the time. So, okay, so the consensus is... It sounds to me most, I mean, almost nine times out of 10, we're going to be writing, in this particular example that Bruce gave, we're going to be writing a C7 sharp nine flat 13. Correct. It's not going to be a sharp five, right? I mean, it's unlikely at least. It's unlikely, and I think it's also technically incorrect. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I think also just to to add, just to clarify even a little bit more, you know, you have to, you have to consider an extension versus an altered chord tone. You know, you have to consider that, you know, that there's, there is a difference. There's a certain difference there. Um, theoretically yep. speaking in, in the basic theory of all that. Okay, great. So, so great that that covers, uh, anything else regarding, uh, proper spellings of chord symbols and stuff like that? No, no, I think, I think that's right. We go in order extension versus alteration. I think, I think that's about it. Great. Yeah. And yeah, and also like that particular chord, C7 sharp 9 flat 13, I mean that's getting pretty close where you could just call it an alt chord. I mean, there, technically alt means there could be a flat 9 or and any of that that stuff in there too or sharp exactly. 11, but And and you know, also if you're writing a version of a like a jazz standard that typically has a chord that's going to be altered, it's even safer to just write alt because the player is going to understand or know kind of what voicing would work. Ooh, if you're, you, yeah. Right. Yeah. Versus if you're writing an original tune and you really want a specific alteration. Ooh, that's such a, that's a really great point that you just brought up there. Um, if I'm reading like a jazz standard lead sheet or G, or chart, um, or in, actually quite often in jazz, you, it can just be fine to write alt because you're giving that freedom. Unless, for example, like let's say you write a C7 sharp 11 specifically because the melody note is the sharp 11, right? right. Then it would be then it would be appropriate to be very specific. And you, you can be specific if you're going for a very specific sound, but you can also just leave that freedom, especially in the case of jazz, because jazz is really up for so much interpretation, right? Right, right. Okay. And it's going to have common interpretation too, which is going to make it... It, it would almost make it more confusing to give too much information if it's typically played a certain way. Right? Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Here's uh, one more question from the Facebook community group. This is from Adrian Petrick. He, uh, he says his question is, he knows in a lot of fake, fake books out there, there's a lot of first ending, second ending stuff that occurs uh, inside of writing each of the entire sections out. I know some other musicians who do not like the way that form of the tune was expressed. When I'm composing and writing out the charts, should I not be using repeats in this short sort of way? Also, could you let me know a bit about why some players don't like this way of doing things? So it sounds like he's asking 
he's you know you see first and second endings if a section is repeated and there's just a slightly different variation on the last two bars or so um but he's seeing he's experiencing that some people like just to see it all written out completely down on the lead sheet uh can you say anything to that yeah um that's a great question um and i think the answer lies totally in context okay so let me deal with that first i think in a in a fake book scenario the truth of the matter is like Fake books and lead sheets are a tool to learn a song, but typically that's going to be committed to memory. Right. Absolutely. hundred percent. Right. So you're writing your first and second ending in a fake book situation is a no brainer. It saves page space and it allows you to look at a single page and learn it and then commit it to memory. And then the sheet music's out the window and it's done. Right. Um, I, if I'm sight reading something, like if like let's say I'm playing for an audition or somebody comes in for like accompaniment and they put something in front of me and there's a second ending or first ending or whatever and I have to turn back, that is an absolute nightmare for me as a sight reader. Because gotcha. right, like if I start on page one and I've got to go back to the beginning on page four, now I'm turning four pages without trying to you know, you don't want to skip any beats or anything. It's a hot mess. So if if I'm writing show tunes um, or if I'm arranging for show tunes, I will just rewrite the whole section. Absolutely, without a doubt. Because chances are the person playing it is seeing it for the first time and doesn't want to deal with a page turn. Um, yeah, so I think it has everything to do with layout. If the person you're writing it for is seeing it one time only and only has one shot to get it correct, you just don't want a, uh, a repeat. Um, but if somebody is using it as study and is going to perform it off the page... I think it's totally fine. Um, I had one more thought here on this. Uh, second endings. Oh, I think they're also a lot friendlier if it if the repeat is on the same page. Okay. Yes, if, right. If, That's exactly what you're getting to, is that yeah. if, you, if it's not on the same page, it's a horror story for someone who's uh, trying to play an arrangement, right? Right, right. Especially if it's the first time. Like we, if, uh, okay, Here's a great example of this. There's a, a particular theater that I play for where the band shows up for the first time during their final dress room. So no rehearsal. These guys come in. If there's a page turn, I am potentially making it so the cast doesn't get to practice that song correctly because the orchestra can't turn their pages. Wow. Yeah. So it's right? a big deal. It's a huge difference. Huge deal. That's so funny because when I first saw this question, I was like, you know, we we, we talked a little bit before uh, before you know pressing uh, the record button here about this, and I just thought to myself, no brainer, first second ending. And you're like, nope, and I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm interested. So now I know. Now and everything you said makes like unbelievable sense. So, man, I you know, is this podcast just for me? Because I feel like I'm I feel like I'm just learning about a lot of things here. Um, amazing. So I think for Adrian's, Adrian's question, the, the bottom line is referring to fake, fake books, first and second ending, that makes complete sense because for the most part, it's going to be one to two pages and you want to memorize that music anyways. But if you're, mm-hmm. if it's like a, a musical theater piece, if it's a big band arrangement, anything yeah. like this, you might want to rethink, you know, having first and second endings and just writing out the parts again, you know, it, it might make a lot more sense. Not only logistically, but, you know, just so that everything doesn't completely tank. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Um, le- okay. Let's talk about, okay. So we just kind of really covered a lot of music notate, like, you know, the ins and outs of music notation, you know, setting up things the, the correct way. Uh, let's talk about kind of the more geeky, nerdy, like, like, you know, the less, the unsung heroes, and this is something that you did a lot of work on on this most recent book, the the Jazz Standards Playbook. We worked a lot on this, and you like you basically worked things down to a science for yeah. formatting this book. So let's talk a bit about spacing and layout. Um, yeah. Now, this is important stuff. You know, some people uh, might not think that this is important, but it is important. And tell me why it is important. Yeah, I think it comes down to convention. And what you're used to people seeing. And and here's why. The point of music engraving is to get the sound off the page and into the air. So you're battling battling against what people have always seen. So if your notes are spaced incorrectly, the chances of the player playing it incorrectly goes up exponentially. 
um, because they've seen it a certain way for years, 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 if you have a professional player doing it. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, it's it, like it has to be, it has to look the way music looks in order for you to get your points across. Um, yeah. Uh, but we spent a lot of time doing like, we spent a lot of time trying to create a uniform identity for what the music is going to look like in right. the book, um, which I think is also relevant as well. Like having, if you are writing a piece for a big band, like all of your big band pieces within reason should have a single identity. Um, and the, the solution that we came up with was developing a library, which some people will refer to this as a house style. And, and basically what that means is it's taking all of the relevant information about where things are on the page. For example, like our margins, half inch margins all the way around. So every time I open up my finale document to work with learn jazz standards material, half inch margin every single time. Um, we decided on a font that we liked. So we decided right. on a, a specific font for the title and a specific font for uh, expressions or like other details within Subtitles, it. Titles. Yeah. Notes, everything. Um, and, you know, and if you want to get super like into it or whatever, like you're going to react differently to different type of text. Certain things are going to be easier on your eyes. So like you always choose a more handwritten looking font, like the, the jazz font that you choose, which comes from all of the charts used to be written by hand. So people who play a lot of jazz would generally prefer to see something that looks more handwritten than something that looks more computerized. Right. Um, that being said, that being said, if we were to be reading music that is uh, full on arrangements, I would, mm-hmm. agree, I would think that that would be detrimental. You want to see things very clean, very mm-hmm. unstylized. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, the handwritten font for me is not my favorite to read at all. I would much right. rather read, um, yeah, something very, very clean. But also, I've spent a lot more time reading things that are written that way. Right. So, right, it can... Yeah, and it's all it's all about context, right? Because if we're talking about, here, read this exercise, that's one thing, versus, uh, you know, here, let's read this 40-page uh, concerto. <laughs> right, exactly. That's exactly correct. Um, that's exactly correct. Um, but I guess let's, let's talk about some of the things that we set up specifically. Yes. For the book. Um, one of the, like, most major things we did is we went into Finale's document options, um, and we changed the standard note spacing. We touched on this a little bit, um, but I think we changed it to 4.1219. Um, I can probably find a more accurate number, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Um, and, and can I pause? For, I'm sorry to interrupt your thought here. You said Finale, so tools yeah. of the trade really fast, just so everybody's on the same page. Yeah. What, so what, the, what, what, what You're using Finale as a, so, as a software. Correct. Um, but... Um, Sibelius is also very popular. Um, there's a new software that just got released that is making lots of hype in the music notation world called Dorico, um, which I have not checked out yet, but from what I'm hearing, it's, it's a pretty cool piece of software. Um, also some people use Lily Pond, um, Muse score is a free resource on the internet. If you're just getting started and you're like, I want to play with some music notation software, Muse score is a great place cause it's free. Um, nice posts your stuff on the internet. Um, but yeah, we used Finale, which by the way, I don't even know that I subscribe to one program being better than the other, but pick a tool and learn to use it really well. Oh, such, yeah, that's, that is golden advice right there. Don't, I mean, seriously, the difference between Sibelius and Finale, I mean, there might be people that are really hardcore. They're going to argue about it, but, yeah. but seriously, just like whatever one you want to use, try to learn that program. There's no need to switch back and forth. You're not losing out on either one of them, I don't think. Um, no. I know we're both finale users. Um, mm-hmm. and you know how I especially know that not other than that we've worked with each other because how? we share a two person license of finale. <laughs> we do. <laughs> but that's so funny. That's true. Yeah. We do. And, and it's, um, I, I personally think finale is, a, is, is great. I mean, I, I love, I love everything about it, but every program is going to have its quirks. Um, so no matter what you decide to use, there's going to be a learning curve. Absolutely. Uh, so um, 
totally yeah. interrupted your spacing yeah, there. Totally sorry fine. about sorry about that. You said finale, and I was like, uh, maybe not everybody knows what that is. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So just that, like, um, yeah. So we we changed the spacing, and the spacing that we changed it to moves all of our notes closer to a golden ratio spacing, and and essentially what this means is it's it's scaling the amount of space from left to right that each of your notes gets. Um, and that, that number is very close to what it would have looked like before computer tech, if some dude was sitting down writing it with ink. Um, and, and in our context, it kind of made the notes squish a little bit closer together, made everything a little bit tighter. Um, there's an awesome tool for finale called, um, well, there are, there are a million tools. They're called JW tools, but there's a, a tool that I have called uh, JW Space, um, and literally that takes everything and it moves it so that the proportions between notes are correct. Um, yeah, and you know what? Just like to be super simple um, and clear, because I'm talking a lot about spacing, and people are probably like, ah, not enough <laughs> details. But if, if you have a measure of music that has all 16th notes and 32nd notes in it, it's probably going to have to be a larger measure than if you had a measure with a half note and two quarter notes. Right. Right. Because if it all took up the same amount of space, you would run out of space on your page. Right. So, you know, and then when you're comparing, like if you're reading one measure of music and let's say that is your, that is your situation. One measure has all 16th, 32nd notes, and the next measure has a half note and two quarter notes in it. Um, your quarter notes are going to take up slightly less space than your half note, but not by much, just slightly. Um, now imagine if they were spaced poorly and your half note and your quarter note bumped right into each other. They were right next to each other, and your last quarter note like bumped up against the next bar line. Would be awful to read, even though technically the note values are still correct. Right. So, um, the second thing that we did was we talked about distance from the top bar line for expression sizes. And expressions is a finale, um, a finale. But um, I'm trying to even think what we wrote up there. What did we write up there? Exercise names. Uh. Well, we we used it. For, we used a bunch of different things, right? We we yeah. We we use exercise names. We used um, uh, on like wrote the Roman numeral analysis stuff. Yeah. We would write the explanations of like it's a two five of four. You know the secondary dominant stuff. We would write all that stuff. And that's actually a really great example because, as I said earlier, we wanted to really create something that looked uniform between all of our songs. Like this, when you look at learn jazz standards music. This is what you're going to see, right? Specifically, this. Um, and one way that you can do that is by creating default presets. So every time I entered in my secondary dominant thing, I didn't have to worry about if it was spaced correctly from the bottom of the staff because I had already preset that so that every right. time I loaded that in, it was a specific distance below the staff. Um, and that creates a really uniform look. Um, Here's something else to, to take note of. Um, stem length is very helpful in... Ooh, okay. Right? So most of the time, if you're using a piece of software, the stem length is going to be pretty close. Um, but the length of it should be about an octave, um, which is going to be two and a half spaces. So, yeah, think about your staff, the distance between your lines. Um, it should be about a full octave. Um, and believe it or not, that's really helping your eyes to follow the curve of a line. Ah, uh, yes. Right. Um, and so like, this is going to be particularly helpful if you have like a line of eighth notes or a line of 16th notes. Um, and then you'll have a bar across the top of it and that bar should follow the general direction that oh, your nice. line is. Moving, right. Um, now if you have a chord, um, it's still going to be an octave in length, but it's going to be an octave in length from the note closest to the outside of the staff. Okay. So if your note's pointing down, your bottom note's an E, that bottom line's got to be going down, still a full octave. Uh, oh, and now, this is a good question. At what point do you notate notes, like maybe just a single note? At what point do you switch the stem from going up or switch the stem yeah. from going down? Well, so the middle line is definitely the deciding factor there. 
Um, but it's sort of so be na- so be natural or be correct. You're in treble clef. Um, yeah, in, in treble clef. I'm thinking in right. treble clef right. or Disclaimer. D if you're in right. But um, if you are writing, let's say you're writing a uh, let's say you're writing an E major scale. Um, the note B on the treble clef is still going to be pointed down because all the notes before it are pointed down. Um, but then once you get to uh, I'm doing that backwards. So yeah, yeah, they're going to be pointed up. It's going to be pointed, pointed up, up because of the notes before are pointed up. Those Correct. stems are. Right. So it sort of has to honor the direction that you're moving. in. Gotcha. Okay, great. So, I love those little rules like that because it really helps you just, uh, especially if you're hand notating this stuff, because I know not everybody uses software. Right. That's really helpful to know um, because a lot of times software will just do it for you. So Correct. Yeah. And you know, for hand, hand notation people, um, if you're just getting started, a great thing to purchase is a clear ruler. Um, so, and you'll use that for writing your lines. Um, <clears throat> but what that's going to allow you to do is see the other things. Uh, when I, I, I occasionally will write by hand and I was using a wooden ruler and I was having such a hard time because I'm like, I can't see the other notes, right? If you get right. a clear ruler, you're able to see everything in full context. And you're also then able to use it to measure. So if you know your staff line is two millimeters, then you're able to measure how long your stems should be. Right? Oh man, yeah, super pro tip right there. Uh, yeah. yeah, this is, wow. This is, you know, there, there's a reason why I hire a professional engraver like Brett, because like, if you think about all the stuff we just talked about, this is very detailed stuff. But even if you like some of the stuff we're talking about is it, this helps your eyes follow. You know, there's so much science behind all this stuff. I mean, this stuff, the, the reason there are settings for all this and industry standards is because a lot of thought and, you know, years of this has gone into study. And there's a reason why you do it this way. And it really does help. It makes a huge difference, whether whether it's for a real professional reason like me, I'm using it for you know, my products for my, for my eBooks, for my educational resources, or whether it's just, you know, you're writing a chart to, you know, get together with your band and and play a tune. All this stuff makes a huge, huge difference. Now, is there anything else you want to say about spacing to, to close that thought? Yeah. One more thought. Um, don't get super caught up in trying to figure out how much you can cram into one line of music. Um, make it look nice on the page. So if, nine staves look beautiful on your page, leave it at nine staves. Um, I know sometimes there's like a tendency, especially with people who are like just getting into it to be like, Oh, I'm going to fit 10 measures of music on one line. Like it's not, it's not necessary. Like really make it look good. I actually, I start with four measures of music per line. Um, and then depending upon, and this is actually another thing, you can also decide how much should go in line based off of your phrase. So if it makes more sense to have five or seven or an odd number of measures in one line because of a phrase of music, um, leave it that way. Um, don't get super caught up in saying it has to be the same in each measure. Every measure has to have the same because you could be in the middle of some sort of a, a run or a line and then jumping down to the next measure is, is tough on your eyes. Um, and also something else to be aware of is you don't want all of your measure lines to vertically line up. So let's say for whatever reason, you do have four measures per, um, per stave. Um, if all of your vertical bar lines are in line, that's tricky on your eyes. It's more likely that you're going to make a reading mistake. So they should be interesting. Interesting. Wow. That is, yeah, I had no idea about that. That is super interesting. Yeah. Which if you're spacing your music correctly, it, it will sort of naturally happen. It's, it's times where you have patterns that are very repetitive that you bump into this issue um, because the spacing then would sort of end up being the same. But you do, you want to kind of offset them however slightly to so just be gentle on the eyes when people are reading Gotcha. Wow. That is, that is amazing. I had no idea about that. Okay. So, oh yeah, I'm going to be a little vulnerable here with the audience. All right. I want you to tell me (laughs) what the most common mistake that you saw me make, uh, when you're editing the materials for the jazz standards playbook. All right. Can I pick two? There are two that pop up. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. There's two. My okay. worst nightmares have been confirmed. I didn't <laughs> yeah. sleep last night. <laughs> Just waiting for this moment. Um, okay. 
Thing number one, I think, was overcompensating with courtesy accidentals. Okay, okay. Um, now, sometimes they're super helpful, right? Like, especially if you have a lot of on and off accidentals in a measure. Um, but you have to give the player a certain amount of assumption that they know what key we're in. Um, so I know we spent a decent amount of time trying to decide what was helpful and what was extra information in the bar. Right. Because we don't over we don't want to give people too much to look at in one measure we want them to be able to just read it um so that was thing number one and i think thing number two was we talked about it earlier like the the question about how do you make syncopation you know how do you clearly see the beats when there's a syncopated line right um, i think there was uh in some cases overcompensation for that where there were tied eighth notes where there it wasn't really a necessary gotcha necessary right yeah. I, mean, I don't know if you noticed, but I totally asked that that question earlier about the the <laughs> the eighth note on beat three and the the yes. quarter note after that. That was a selfish question too. Yeah. I'm le- I, see. I I love doing uh I love doing this podcast and having guests because you know I get to learn and that's the yeah. fun thing. Now, really quickly, going back to my first mistake or yeah. you know I guess you could call it mistake overcompensating yeah. on uh the uh, the uh, courtesy accidentals. Well, yeah. what, just for everybody, like, what is a courtesy accidental, and in what case would you want to use courtesy accidentals? It's a very relative question. A courtesy accidental is just when you see a sharp or a flat in parentheses. And you're doing that because... Because, uh, okay, in all the things you are, we technically wrote that song out in A-flat. Right. So technically, every time you see an A-flat it's going to still be an A-flat, right? Yep. Um, but if there was an example where we had some sort of a... Uh, well, there's lots of key changes in the song. There, right, there were lots of key changes, so we end up with G-sharps, which you would need to s- still write that. But I think it comes into play a lot more if you were... Mm, okay, like let's say we were doing uh, a passing tone down to... Well, that's a bad one, too. Um, well, if, if, for example, okay. maybe like the bar before it, it was, it was, it turned into an a natural, but then it's switching back the next bar to an a flat. Cause a right. Flat. Once you're, once you're done a bar, once you're right. done a bar, it's, it's, you know, you ignore what happened before it. If there was a change in the, the, from what the key signature says, does that, did I right. just, yeah. did anything so that I just did. said made sense? I don't that know. Was right. That was okay. absolutely correct. Yeah. If you're doing a naturals in one bar, you move to the next bar, you're back to a flat. Right. Uh, so technically, that shouldn't need uh, a courtesy accidental. However, um, like just like we've been talking this whole time, like context makes sense. If if we're writing this for somebody who is maybe not used to reading it that way, or, or if we're writing it for somebody who is maybe more of a beginner to reading, or or whatever it is, that could be super helpful. Now, I do get pushback on that when I like look online and like even the music notation communities because players will be like, no, you're training musicians to expect it and right. not use their brain and know that that's supposed to be an A-flat. Right. Uh, but again, context. Who are you writing for? Who's reading it? Why are you writing it? Great. Yeah, I sense a lot of disdain in your voice for me right now when it comes to uh, <laughs> those... I mean, it. You know, I can tell that there's no. a lot of anger built up inside. <laughs> you know, very. But you know, we uh, we had to have, in particular, with that piece, like some real discussions about, like, is this piece playable? Because this was for a, a maybe a contrafact or a solo that you wrote for it. Uh huh. Right. Right. But we had to have like a real conversation and be like, well, what is going to be the most readable? Right. Um, which sometimes, not always, but sometimes defies what is the most correct. Gotcha. Wow, yeah. that was great. Let's apply yeah. that all to... The, now, let's talk about other things in life that we could apply that to. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> uh, okay, that's awesome. All right, Brett, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I feel like I learned a ton, and I'm super excited yeah. we had this episode because it's not something we've ha- we've we've covered before, but... Uh, Oh man, so many so many questions I wish were answered years and years ago were answered today. So thank you so much for just dropping a you know massive value bombs on my audience. Uh, super appreciate it. Um, now I I've gotten so much value out of having you work with me on my projects. Um, how can people collaborate with you? 
So you guys, if you are looking to collaborate or are even looking for like lessons or um, that type of thing in Finale, or if you're looking for an engraver, you can get in touch with me on my website, um, which is brettpontecorvo.com. Um, and there's a tab on there that says engraving. Um, so if you click on there, you can see all of my details and you can reach out to me. Feel free to reach out to me with any questions or if you're looking to hire an engraver, um, you know, that's what I do. Awesome. And, and uh, we got to do the due diligence on spelling that out. So it's B-R-E-T-T P-O-N-T-E-C-O-R-V-O. Yes. I have a terrible last name too. It's, it's you know, makes so everything funny. so hard. It's like, why can't I, yeah. why, why did, why, why is my last name? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Smith. You're the one four year old who still can't spell your last name. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes actually make a m- spelling mistakes. Actually, it's it's really embarrassing when that happens. It's like, wow, I can't spell my own name. Um, Auto corrects my last name every time I type it in. So, listen, everybody. Uh, if you need any lessons with any of this stuff, if you need finale lessons, music notation lessons, or if you need an engraver, I 100 percent want to encourage you to go to brettpontecorvo.com, click his engraver tab, uh, and uh, oh, man, there's just no one better to go to. So, uh, Brett, I want to thank you again so much for being on the show, and I have this feeling that we're going to have you back on again in the future sometime. I'd love to be back, dude. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that's all for today's show. I want to thank you so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Another big special thanks to our guest today, Brett Pontecorvo. Remember that if you want any music notation lessons or maybe you want to use his services, go to brettpontecorvo.com and hit him up there. And remember the Jazz Standards Playbook. I'm really excited. It's coming out this Sunday, April 8th, or if you're listening from the future, it is probably already out. Find that at the jazzstandardsplaybook.com. One last call to action for you. If you got value out of this show today, make sure you leave a rating or a review on iTunes. Helps other people find the show and shows people this is a show worth listening to. So be sure to do that. Now, I'm really excited. You know, we're not going to stop with the guests here. We're going to keep this thing rolling. You know, I mean, I want to I I bring some people on to give you more value, to help, you, to help serve you better. So next week, I'm having on Nick Manella from the 10-Minute Jazz Lesson Podcast, and he's going to be talking to us about the blues. You're not going to miss this episode. So I'll see you next week. Episode 110. Thanks for listening to the LJS podcast brought to you by LearnJazzStandards.com. Subscribe to the series on iTunes and don't forget to join our jazz community at LearnJazzStandards.com forward slash newsletter. Hey, podcast listener, would you like to ask me a jazz question and get it answered here on the show? Then go to learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. That's learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask. I look forward to hearing your question and answering it on a future podcast episode. Learnjazzstandards.com forward slash ask or find the link in today's show notes.